you look at your the outline I provided for you, um, if there's any here who has graduated from high school, when you look at the top, very beginning part where I have the first part of the title, if you graduated from high school, you're going to recognize we have a grammar problem because the verb doesn't match up in number with the, uh, the thing that follows it. It should be our works essential to salvation, not is works. That sounds like a fourth grader, doesn't it? Um, why did that happen? Well, first, it is good to be back. Uh, second, it's been a long, I don't know, 84 days. That's a bit of exaggeration. Trish and I uh, left for Kittery, Maine last two Fridays ago, and we have uh, we drove out part of the way, and then Saturday when we finished that drive, it was nothing but downpour for six hours. And if you've ever driven in nothing but downpour for six hours around Boston, it's not a fun experience because that's how that's how they talk uh, up in that pod in New England. <laughs> um, I preached two times at Faith Baptist Church, Kittery, Maine, Pastor Justin Kaufman there. And then uh, Monday was full of uh, getting ready for the meetings, Tuesday through Thursday. We did a little uh, sightseeing that I tried to give you some enjoyment on. That's one of the places there on the front of your bulletin. Uh, what's the name of that, Trish? Nubble Lighthouse. Lighthouse. Oh, just a beautiful place there. And then uh, Tuesday through Thursday was the American Council of Christian Churches Convention. Uh, good days, long days. We began about 6 a.m. and finished about 10 p.m. Uh, I'm speaking for Trish and I there. And so it's just getting everything ready. I spoke three times on a number of issues. Um, men as well spoke. Uh, many expressed their love and prayers for Aurora Bible Church. How's the building going? How's the church? They pray for us, and that's an encouraging thing. I wanted to pass that along. Uh, we drove back 11 hours on Friday. Um, just Trish and I, we missed having a young person with us to take the helm for a little bit. We're getting old, and making that kind of a drive was, was difficult. Or maybe I should just uh, pay Ryan to drive us since he loves to drive long. He's all for it. You're going to be my convention driver. We're going to have an American Council of Christian Churches semi. I, I'm liking this idea. Um, yesterday was uh, filled with getting ready for today, uh, bulletin, daily devotional, the messages and things of that nature. So when I printed off the outline uh, early this morning, was putting them in the bulletins. Later this morning, I see is works essential for the salvation. You know, I'll admit there are some Sundays I see that I'm like, nope. I pull them out and I'm going to reprint them, <laughs> but not today. <laughs> um, another thing too is I am tired in body, uh, not in spirit. I'm encouraged. We had excellent, encouraging convention, but I'm I'm whipped. And I gave thanks to the Lord for that this morning. The power of God's word does not depend on the speaker. I can have wrong grammar like this, and I can have weakness in body and mind uh, and not worry one bit that God will be limited in what he will accomplish. 
I need to have that focus. And I hope that we all have that focus. And that we will pray that way every time we gather. Lord, your word is powerful. Use it this morning or this afternoon or this Wednesday night for your glory. James 2, verses 14 to 26 this morning. Are our works essential to salvation and the kind of faith that saves? Roman Catholicism, and frankly, all other religions say that living a good life and doing good things are essential for eternal life. Yes, you must believe in God, but you must live a good life. If you don't live a good life, you won't do enough to get into heaven. When you talk to folks about, do you expect to go to heaven someday? They'll say, I hope so. I hope I've lived a good life. I hope I've done enough good things and not too many bad things. I hope that things balance okay in God's scales. That is how all human, human, human religion thinks. Biblical Protestants, we need to qualify it that way because there are many who call themselves Protestants, but they are not biblical because they deny the scriptures. I'm talking about current day ones. But biblical Protestants say that eternal life is received. It is not earned. It's received only by grace. Through faith in Christ alone. Our only expectation of being saved is because of Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who he is the Christ, the Son of God, and what he has done, dying on the cross, living a perfect life, and rising from the dead. Biblical Protestants say no one could ever do enough to earn eternal life. Biblical Protestants will often turn to the Apostle Paul, who's, who points out it is saved by faith and then what's the next word? Alone. Only faith. Roman Catholics will respond by pointing to church authority and church teaching. And if they turn to the Bible, they'll turn to James chapter 2 and look with me at verse 17. They'll point to this one. Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead in verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, before we get into this, we need to understand how authority works in Roman Catholicism. The Roman Catholic Church says the church is the final authority. And listen, scripture comes from the church, they say. And so it's not just scripture alone. There is also church councils church decisions, and then, of course, the Pope himself, who can speak from his seat as the, the, the ruler of Christ's representative on earth, and he can speak 
the Latin phrase is ex cathedra, uh, from the very seat, and that is God's truth. So it is not just scripture, but it is scripture and the church and councils and church fathers and the Pope. Whereas the scripture says, thus saith whom? The Lord. This is what the scriptures say. There do seem to be differences between Paul and James. Paul says, by faith alone. And then what do we read here in verse 17 and 26 from James? Faith without works is dead. And if we're looking at it mathematically, 2 plus 2 equals 4. It looks like I need to have faith and I need to have works in order to be saved. Roman Catholics, right? Are other faiths correct? This is all part of the introduction. Let's consider three things about Paul and James here. The problem, the viewpoint, and the solution. The problem, the viewpoint, and the solution. The problem, Paul and James are addressing different problems. The problem that Paul is addressing is someone who depends on works in order to be right with God. That's the problem Paul addressed, primarily the Jews. Thinking that my works help me be right with God. The problem James addressed was just mental acceptance is enough. There's no need for works. James was addressing someone who said he has faith, but it was just a mental, yeah, I believe in Jesus kind of faith that did not show itself at all in life. Two different problems. That's the problem. The viewpoint, then, second, the viewpoint, Paul He sees works. The problem that he's dealing with is, are works necessary? Are they the the means of gaining salvation? And so he's looking at works before salvation. Works from the standpoint of, are they necessary? Must they be there to be saved? And James is looking at works from the vantage point of after salvation. Works that. Follow salvation. Do you see the difference there? The viewpoint is different. The problem is different. And so third, the solution is different because of different problems. Paul's solution is this. Works are never a condition for salvation. Works are never a condition for salvation. The only, if you will, condition For salvation is faith alone, trusting in Christ alone. James's solution to the problem that he is addressing, that you can call, you can think, James's problem that he is addressing is people who call themselves Christians but didn't have any works to show it. James says, works always are the evidence of salvation. Works are always the evidence of salvation. So some look at Paul 
in James with their swords as if they're fighting each other, clanging away at odds and contradicting each other. And that is not the case. Paul and James have their sword. They believe it's faith alone and Christ alone. But they're not fighting each other. No, they are back to back. They're fighting different enemies. James is fighting this enemy with faith and salvation and justification, meaning the same thing that Paul is. Faith and salvation and justification. Except Paul is fighting an enemy who says, you have to do works in order to be saved. James is fighting the same sword, faith and salvation, justification. James is fighting the enemy of someone who says he's saved and doesn't have to show any evidence of it whatsoever. That's the battle that's being go- going on here. Let's look at this passage then. As we see that true saving faith consciously exerts itself to love and obey God. We use the word work. Paul, uh, James uses the word works a lot here. And so to help us think, what does he mean by works? I'm using this expression, consciously exerts itself. Consciously means this is a decision I'm making. This is something I want to do. Exert means there's effort put into it, planning, accomplishment. That's what's wrapped up in this idea of works, a conscious exertion. It'd be like if I told one of my kids when they were home, I want you to clean your room. Okay, mom. Or okay, dad. Okay, dad, I will. And they sit there. Don't you believe what I just said, that if you don't clean your room, you're going to be punished? Yeah, I believe that. I really do, Dad. I really do. And they just sit there. They're not working. They're not, what are the two words here? Consciously exerting themselves. They're not, they really don't believe it because if they did believe it, they would consciously exert themselves to obey me. If they don't do that, they really don't believe. If they do it, they really did believe. And that's what James is saying here. Number one, a faith that does not consciously exert itself to obey God is unprofitable and unfruitful. Verse 14, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verses 14 to 17, we see how faith without works is unprofitable. Let's see three different characteristics about this kind of, and you could put it in quotes, this kind of faith. It's not a real faith. It's not a genuine faith. It's a fake faith that doesn't show itself in conscious exertion. The first characteristic is in verse 14. It is a faith that does not save. It does not save. Can that faith save him? Who merely believes. 
but there's no evidence. What is faith? Genuine faith, real faith. There's three aspects to genuine faith. There is knowledge. There is content that is believed, accepted as true. But it's not just head knowledge. True faith has a heart response. It's assent, A-S-S-E-N-T. It is welcoming. It is, that's true. I believe that. But there's also, third, an unreserved trust. An unreserved obedience to that truth. Knowledge, assent, unreserved trust, and obedience. Those are the three biblical aspects of saving faith. And so when Paul says, or when James says here, can faith save him? He is talking about salvation from eternal judgment. A second characteristic is in verses 15 to 16. This kind of false faith James is talking about can do no good. It does no good. Here's a picture of a Christian, a fellow believer in a desperate condition. Now, it says here a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food. This is not talking about a professing believer who can't pay his monthly uh, bill for his Cadillac. Oh, I need help from the church. I can't pay my bills here. That's not what this is talking about. Because how does it describe this Christian here? How many clothes does how much clothes does he have? He can't even go, he doesn't even have enough to go to Goodwill. What about daily food? I mean, daily food, there's nothing in his cupboard. He is poverty stricken. That's the kind of believer that's being talked about here. We know that because it says brother or sister here. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you who thinks that you're saved, but there's no works, you don't think you have to, there's no conscious exertion, you simply say, Go in your peace, be warm and filled, I'll be praying for you. What does that profit? It is a false faith seen in false love. A false faith seen in false love. What are the two great commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you truly believe in the Lord, you will love him. And if you truly love and believe in the Lord, you will love God's people. This kind of false faith that does no good is a bumper sticker kind of Christianity. It doesn't obey those first and second great commandments. It thinks I'll slap my bumper sticker on or... I'll put a pin on my lapel or I'll put it on my Instagram page that I love Jesus or whatever the case might be. I'll share a post and showing that everyone I'm a Christian, but there's no genuine love and sacrifice. A third characteristic, verse 17, it has no life. Faith, this 
I'm sorry, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. True faith is a living faith. It's consciously exerting itself. It works. It's motivated by Christ. It wants to obey him. It's real. If it's just profession without action. I say I'm a Christian. That's profession. But there's no action. James says, it's dead. What does that mean? It's a corpse. It's just a dead body. What can you do with a corpse? You can dress it up. You can put makeup on it. You can make the hair look good. You've perhaps been in those types of settings and you look at the corpse, the dead body, and this is all kind of gruesome to think about, but it's the parallel that James draws here. And you can look at that and it says, it looks so much like the individual. But there's no breath coming out of its nostrils. The pinky doesn't even lift. It lies there. Dead. Motionless. Without consciousness. Without any exertion. James says, the kind of person who says, I believe, but there's no action, is a spiritual corpse. There is no life. Second, in verses 18 to 20, not only is faith without works unprofitable, but it is unfruitful. Beginning part of verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Faith is demonstrated. It's proven. It's validated by works. That conscious exertion to obey God motivated by a love for God. The idea of verse 8, on the beginning of verse 18, you have faith and I have works is, well, I had simply prayed a prayer. And because I prayed that prayer, I'm good with God. No matter what happens afterwards. And it is a sad thing that that kind of Christianity is still present today. It's out there in churches like ours. It's out there in camps that we participate in. It's out there in the, the Instagram, the Facebook, the YouTube of our evangelical Christianity. I believe in Jesus. And so therefore I'm saved. And who are you to tell me that I'm not a Christian? James responds in verse 18, Show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. True saving faith loves God and obeys him. It does Christian works. What are those? The list is as long as God's character and commands. A genuine Christian has the spirit indwelling him. And what are the fruits? The works of the spirit. What's the first one listed? Love. 
consciously exerting love for brothers and sisters. Peace with one another, joy in circumstances, patience in hard times, obeying God's commands, praying, gathering with the church, working hard, giving. All those commands are evident and seen. An obedient response to Christ. James is saying here that the proof of genuine salvation is seen in obedience. Obedience is the distinguishing mark, the essential characteristic, attribute, and trait of saving faith. How can you know if you're saved or not? Is it possible to have assurance of salvation? Assurance of salvation is looking at your salvation from your perspective. It is different from eternal security. Eternal security looks at your salvation from God's perspective. From God's perspective, the genuine believer is eternally secure. But from our perspective, that assurance can be strong, it can be weak. Can you really know, can you really know, can you really have assurance that you are born again, that you are a Christian? Yeah, we got a whole book of the Bible devoted to that in 1 John. And the way to gain assurance of salvation, I've said this many times, is not by looking in your Bible where you wrote down, I prayed to accept Christ on such and such a date. And when you have doubts, you go back to that and look at that. That's what I grew up with. That's how people, many people in the church I grew up in said, that's how you have assurance of salvation. But that's not what God says. For example, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Write that down and look at it sometime. I'll read it. How can you know if you have true salvation? John says there in 1 John 2, 3, by this we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Do you obey God? And it's not, oh, I gotta keep the commandments. Oh, this is such a burden. Oh, I gotta make sure I'm do, 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 and don't, 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 and keep my checklist Christianity, and that way hopefully I get enough. That's not genuine Christianity. Genuine Christianity is, I love the Lord because he first loved me and I want to obey him. I want to do what's right. And when you do sin, you respond to that like a genuine believer does. First John 1, 9, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just. Anyone can pray a sinner's prayer. Anyone can pray a sinner's prayer. But only true believers love to obey Christ in every aspect of their lives. Verse 19, you believe that there is one God you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Faith involves more than just an intellectual, yeah, I agree with that. Do demons have good theology? They sure do. They have right knowledge about God. In fact, guess who knows more about God 
than any of us here right now. Demons have been around since the beginning of creation. They know God. But they do not love God. And they do not obey God. They have a right head knowledge about God. But they do not love God. And they will not obey God. They have no change of nature. No change of character. No change of direction. No change of action. Faith that is mere knowledge without a devoted love, without an obedience. Faith that is just head knowledge with no love and no obedience, that's a demonic faith. We need to see this. And so he repeats it again in verse 20. Do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? It's a corpse. Religion that professes Christianity, religion that professes Christianity, but still characterized by lust in the heart, and there's no grief over it, or immorality in life, still characterized by self-gratification, and I'm going to put myself first, and yeah, I'm going to go to church because I'm, I have to, or I'm supposed to, or I'm expected to, but you know my mind is elsewhere. I have no love for this. I don't like to sing. I don't want to hear the Bible. I don't want to read it. I have no desire for it whatsoever. I'd rather do this. I'd rather do that. I'd rather do this with my body because it makes me feel good. That's a false faith, James says here. Remember the enemy that James is attacking. He is not attacking someone who says, I need to clean myself up in order to be right with Christ. That's who Paul was attacking. James is attacking an enemy that says, I can be a Christian and do those things. I can be a Christian and not obey God. James says that's not true faith. In verses 21 to 26, a true living faith consciously exerts itself by obeying God. And this is illustrated by two individuals, by Abraham and by Rahab. Let's look at Abraham. I'm sorry, Abraham, Rahab, and then life itself. Let's look at Abraham, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture is fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that man is justified by works and not by faith only. This is one that obviously Roman Catholics and works-based salvationists go to. Well, we need to remember the historical context. This is in Genesis chapter 22. 30 years after Abraham's salvation in Genesis 12 and 15. Back in Genesis 12 and 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. This is 30 years after. And what was the circumstance? God commanded Abraham, take Isaac, your only son. And he was his only son from his flesh. 
take him up to the mountain and sacrifice him to me. You know the story? Abraham took him up and he was ready to do it, wasn't he? Even though God promised that through Abraham's descendants, he would have innumerable descendants. And he's about to kill the one that God promised. So how's this going to work out? Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 11, Abraham was thinking God can raise him from the dead. And so he trusted God. And he showed his trust in God by, what's the O word? Obeying him. Do you remember the story? Abraham, stop! Abraham stopped, perhaps wiping his brow. 30 years. And God said, verse 21, that Abraham is righteous because he had a genuine living faith. That verse 22 That genuine living faith showed itself in conscious obedience to God. The made perfect here doesn't mean that he had an imperfect faith. It was showing he had a mature, complete faith. Faith that did what it was supposed to do. What's faith supposed to do? Obey God. Knowledge, assent, unreserved trust. Knowledge that's just head. Or faith that's just head knowledge is not true faith. Abraham's faith was shown to be perfect, whole, complete. It did what it was supposed to do. We're at the end of the growing season. Where are we? There's some winter wheat growing, isn't there? You might look at a two-inch maple sapling. Is that the right word? Seedling? You know that's not my forte. Is that two-inch maple seedling a genuine maple tree? Even though it's not big, strong, and bearing helicopter things to fill up your gutters? Is that little two-inch thing a real maple? Sure is. Sure is. How can you tell that little two-inch sapling from other saplings? It takes time, doesn't it? It takes maturity, takes growth. But once it starts to grow, it bears fruit, the kind of leaves, perhaps the type of bark, other things that characterize that tree as a tree, as a maple. What characterizes a genuine Christian from a false Christian. They both kind of start the same. But a genuine Christian will grow and mature, perfect, and bear the right kind of fruit. Abraham's faith showed itself to be the real deal because he obeyed God. And only that kind of faith is the kind of faith that results in justification. Only a faith that results in works is the kind of faith that justifies. Faith means faith. Justification means justification. Some come to this passage by saying faith has a different meaning than Paul and justification has a different meaning from Paul. You don't need to do that. 
The kind of saving faith that justifies is one that relies on God, that depends on him, that believes his promises, and that shows itself in a genuine, submissive obedience to the Lord. It starts off small, a little seedling, but that genuine faith will grow and will mature. He then illustrates it by Rahab in verse 25. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them, I'm sorry, sent them out another way? The 12 tribes had crossed the Jordan River. This is in the beginning of the book of Joshua. And they were coming to the very first city of Jericho. And they sent some spies in. These spies uh, were being tracked down by the, the king. And so Rahab took these spies, welcomed them into her house. And even though she was an immoral woman, she had trusted in the Lord. And she has one of the most glorious testimonies, confessions of faith that I want us to hear it. Put your bookmark here and let's go to Joshua chapter 2. All the way back to the beginning of your Bibles. It's the sixth book. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua. Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. The spies came to Rahab. Somebody told the king of Jericho that the spies were there. Jer uh, so the king sent out individuals to get them. They came to the uh, Rahab the harlot. Uh, she said in verse 4, Yes, the men came, but I didn't know where they were from. And they already left, but she had hid them. Listen now, verse 8, to what Rahab says to these Israelite spies. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know. Remember the first aspect of genuine faith? Knowledge. I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone of you because of you. For the Lord, here's her confession, the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. That is an Old Testament confession of faith. That is her sinner's prayer, if you will. She's saying, I know your God. I fear him. I believe in him. I will follow him alone. And I'm going to demonstrate that by totally accepting the fact that God has given Canaan to you, uh, to, to these Jacobites, <coughs> to Israel. I am going to side with God's people rather than my own. 
even if it costs me my life. And so she hid the spies. Back to James chapter 2, verse 26. James chapter 2 and verse 26. A third illustration. It is illustrated by life. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. How do you know someone is physically dead? There's no spirit of life in them that causes energy. Or movement. It's a physical corpse. How do you know when someone is spiritually dead? Because there's no spiritual life that causes energy or spiritual movement in them. They are a spiritual corpse. They might be dressed up to look like living human beings, makeup and outward apparel, apparel, but they are dead. You can be right with God. You can be right with God only by exclusively relying on Christ. That is the only way. It is sola fide, by faith alone. You can't be right with God if your faith is just a mental, yep, that doesn't have a full welcome of the heart and total obedience of the will. That is the only kind of true faith. Absolute Belief in the truth, welcoming love with the heart, and unqualified obedience with the will. And that is seen in the character of your life. It is seen in the direction of your life. That is seen in the actions of your life. Everyday situations where your faith is tested is given the opportunity to work. You don't need these crisis times like Abraham and Rahab. These are just two examples here. What about your work ethic? Is your work ethic do as little as possible to get by? Is your work ethic be an eye pleaser rather than a Christ-pleaser? How do you respond to unbelievers? What kind of a spouse are you? A mom or a dad? If you're living at home as a child or a young person, what is your attitude towards your parents? What are your actions toward your parents. When trials come, and they do, don't they? What's your response to those trials? 
if you have little money or if you have much money? What's your attitude in poverty or wealth? James talks about these things in chapter 1. He also talks about in chapter 1 your response to temptation. Well, God brought it in my life. I have no choice. It's his sovereign will. And who is anyone to buck against God? So I had no choice. I had to sin because he brought me into this temptation. God does not do that. Temptation arises from our sin nature. And you have to recognize that and resist it. Or chapter 3. Your your speech, your tongue. Or chapter 4, your attitude and your actions towards other Christians. The character of your life in a sin-corrupted world. If you're truly saved, you don't have to be forced to please Christ. You want to please Christ. You love holiness. You love righteousness. You don't need someone to force you to keep you to keep doing this because you're supposed to. The Spirit's doing that and you respond and you want to and you love the Lord Jesus. But what if you're here this morning and you would have to say, that's not me. Pastor, what James says here, that characterizes me. You say, I believe it in my head, but it's not in my heart, and it's not in my life. Is there any hope? You come to the realization that your faith is no different from a demon's. That is a frightening, scary situation to be in. Is there any hope? Is there any hope, Oral Bible Church? There is. Confess the sin. Repent of it. Look to Christ. Call on him genuinely. With repentance and sorrow in your heart for your sin. Complete and unconditional surrender. Total dependence on him. Kneel before him. Stop playing around, calling yourself a Christian while living like a Judas. Have a living 